Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name is Aaron. My name is Justin. And we would like to welcome you back to a, another fantastic episode of Fly on the Wall. This one, we're hoping, will take you uh, on your travels back home. If you're fortunate to go back home for Thanksgiving, or if you're just lounging around uh, your dorm room or your house waiting for uh, the holiday season uh, with some, enjoying some time off, we hope you enjoy uh, listening to Fly on the Wall. We're excited to have you here. Yeah, I would like to say I am personally very excited for this episode. It is uh, a hilarious one with someone who is way funnier than I ever hoped to be. Um, so it's going to be a really cool episode. <laughs> and it'll be long enough to uh, to get you through your your commute or your travels or whatever else you have planned. Yeah, so spoiler alert, our guest this week is Ron Bonjean, who is a fellow here at Geopolitics this semester. Uh, he has some incredible stories about his time um, on the Hill and then also working with uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch through his confirmation process. Uh, fun fact about him, he is the only person to be the top spokesman for both the House leadership and Senate leadership. Um, so that is really cool. And we get inside both of those rooms. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say he also throws an awesome Christmas party, but I don't want to give too <laughs> many spoilers. You will get all of that uh, in the episode. Yeah. So uh, as always, follow us on social media, at Fly on the Wall Podcast, all that fun stuff. You know that. Um, we're going to stay right on the topic of social media and bring you our tweet of the week this week. Which conveniently comes to us from our guest, Ron Bonjean, who is at Ron Bonjean on Twitter. Um, and this was a, uh, a fun tweet uh, from last week, actually, when Twitter decided to expand everyone to 280 characters. Oh, it finally happened. Yeah, we, we had our rant about that. Uh, but he used his first 280 character tweet as such. I am just typing to see how long it will take to express myself the 280 characters because while it feels good to have that extra freedom to add thoughts, it also puts a little more pressure on me to now fill the space. You see where this is going. So anyway, here's how I feel about the Virginia governors. And that was 280 characters. <laughs> <laughs> um, that just gives you a hint of, of Ron's sense of humor that we'll get into uh, in the interview. See, that doesn't feel like too. I might fact check this. <laughs> I'm actually going to... You think he just did it for the humor? I think he did it for the humor, because that it doesn't feel like 280. I'm copying and pasting <laughs> now. Oh, he had one one character to spare. Oh, well, there you go. Wow. One character to spare. Well, did you count the space after governors? No. Did he have a space after governors? Well, he would have if he was going to put another word. It's true. Fair. Yeah, mm. well, there you go. That gets you to zero. So. Fact check proven. I apologize, Ron, for not trusting you completely. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been fact checked and you've been proven correctly. Great. Okay, so uh, we're going to get into what really grinds our gears this week, uh, the gear grinding segment, uh, and it is political crises. Uh, and this subject comes because Ron has handled, uh, basically his entire career has been handling political crises, um, and the entire episode is essentially how he's handled various ones. Uh, so political crises, let's have at it. So I've recently gotten into watching the hit TV show Scandal. It's been my obsession over the last few days. I have been not doing homework slash shirking other obligations because I've been nonstop watching Scandal. And I don't know what you just whispered to Christian over there, Justin. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to go off about Scandal anyway. So <laughs> I like to think um, about people like Ron as like these sort of Olivia Pope-esque sort of figures, just sort of hiding in the shadows, not really appearing in the news reports, but just sort of fixing things and managing crises. Um even though I'm, I'm sure I'd be sorely disappointed, but that's like what first comes to mind when I hear like political crisis or scandal. It's it, it goes my mind goes to this TV show, um, and and I imagine it's not all as fun and games as it looks like on TV. See, I'm gonna take a little bit more of a negative view to political crises. Um, Aaron thinks of it more as scandal. I think of it more as Veep. Um, <laughs> I think like, and we we talked about this in one of my classes, but I think like a lot of political crises come about from people who are just like too dumb to know any better or like to like make better choices 
Um, and like the people who end up handling it, obviously exception Ron, uh, because he clearly handles it masterfully. Um, but a lot of the times I feel like political crises are handled by like somebody who's on like way too little sleep and like on their like fifth cup of coffee. And they're not like these like powerful Olivia Pope figures, but they're really just like some lowly staffer who is just like, God, I have to deal with this today. Um, and that's, I guess, like my thoughts. I choose to believe <laughs> that there are Olivia Popes out there that make everything better. I'm sure there are, and we hope to be them one day. Um, so what grinds my gears about political crises, um, I'm sorry, I don't have a TV show to reference. Although Christian and I did just watch, start watching Suits, so uh, yeah, take that as you will. Um, <laughs> plenty of crises there, but, but we'll stick to the politics side. Um, what grinds my gears is the how crises can get blown out of proportion and weaponized. Um, so what I mean by that, um, and this certainly obviously comes up in TV shows plenty of times. Um, but when there is a legitimate crisis and, and Ron will talk about a lot of these actually. Um, but it's taken by, again, this happens in politics and partisanship so much. It gets taken by the other side and really blown out of, out of proportion, used as a weapon, um, for a political purpose. Um, and it, it just doesn't do the crisis itself justice. Uh, and we hear Ron talk a lot about, um, you know, having to deal with not only the crisis itself, but the, the crisis reactions a lot. Um, and it's, it's frustrating because things, you know, crises are always bad. There's never anyone who enjoys a crisis. Um, but it, when it gets worse than it needs to be, um, it's just unfortunate because crisis happens to everyone too, is I think the second takeaway. And you never know one day you're, you're spinning crisis to, to make your side look good. And then the next day it, it gets turned right back around on you. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. And I think this is just a good transition into our interview with Ron. Uh, but essentially, Ron's entire career has been handling these crises. Um, you know, he worked for, um, like I said, both, uh, you know, the Speaker of the House, as he was the top spokesman, and then the Senate Majority Leader, where he was also the top spokesman. So he essentially was responsible for, you know, the entire Republican caucus in both the House and the Senate at some point, uh, which means he was the voice for um, the entire Republican caucus and like had to speak on any crisis that came up from anyone in the Republican caucus. Um, and there were quite a few uh, during his tenure um, and he had to handle a lot of them. And it was a, it's a really interesting conversation with essentially how he, you know, definitely maneuvered, you know, the chess pieces essentially to um, make his boss look the best. Yeah, but also his Christmas parties. Like, the, <laughs> it is so funny. Like, just ask for an invite, Aaron. Listen to the, I want to. Just listen to the episode and then um, just take a Google and see what you can find. There's, <laughs> there's some funny stuff if you look up Bon Jean's Christmas parties. And we'll leave you with that. Let's bring in Ron. Uh, Ron Bonjean, welcome to the podcast. We are excited to have you on today. Thanks. It's great to be here. You have the most energy that we've ever seen at this early recording hour. So thank you so much for uh, your excitement and being a part of this podcast. You got it, man. I'm enthusiastic to do it. Great. We're super excited to have you here. And we want to talk to you a little bit about your experience uh, in the communications world of Republican politics, since that's sort of where you cut your teeth uh, and where you had some really awesome experiences. So uh, let's just start at the very beginning. Um, so you were the top spokesman for Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott at the time. Uh, but before that, how did you get to that point? What was your path in politics that led you to that uh, fantastic job? It's a great question. Um, you know, I came to Washington um, with uh, the promise of a job as long as I had an internship 
on Capitol Hill first. So I ended up landing an internship with a California congressman because the staff assistant saw my resume and she had gone to the University of Wisconsin-Madison too, as like I did. And I had just graduated from, exactly. So she said, I want another badger in the office. So I ended up um, getting an internship for a California congressman as a recent Wisconsin graduate. Wow. Um, that's the kind of thing that can happen in Washington. And so bottom line is I worked for a PR firm for 10 months. They lost a number of their clients and I ended up getting laid off, which was the best thing ever because I went back to Capitol Hill for that internship. I worked there for one month. I had no ego about it. Um, I knew it was a power center where I needed to, to get back up there to, to really create a resume. And a month later, um, I had the job of uh, deputy press secretary and a junior legislative assistant at age 23 years old. Wow. Um, <laughs> two months later, I engaged, I, I experienced my first Washington scandal, okay. the chief of staff and the, um, and the district director had, were having an affair <laughs> and the conservative wow. California congressman, um, not too thrilled? Not too thrilled. Fired him. <laughs> and the chief of staff was also the press secretary. Really? And I always thought, how could she do both jobs? It seemed really ridiculous to me. Uh, right. And um, the congressman asked if I wanted the job. So at age 23, I was the youngest press secretary at Capitol Hill. And I worked for a number of jobs um, uh, to get to the Trent Lott piece. But I worked for about five House Republicans mm -hmm. um, in different parts of the country. I like to call the... House of Representatives, my Epcot Center, <laughs> because I was where worked for a guy from Maine, a guy from Delaware, uh, a woman from um, Texas, um, you know, obviously the California congressman, and then I landed in leadership um, with uh, a, a congressman from Oklahoma. Wow. Um, and I ran the message operation for the House Republican Conference, which is trying to keep all these members of Congress on the same page at the same time, which is virtually impossible. Yeah. Um, but I created a war room for the first time between House Republicans and Senate Republican press staff, where we would plan out the week on how we could go on offense and where we need to play defense at. Um, and I brought in Trent Lott's office. And they saw me in action, and we're, I had a great relationship with them. And so when their person left... I ended up filling that spot and uh, went over to the Senate side, which is totally different from the House side. <laughs> Senate side's very, you know, it's very she-she, it's very fine china. <laughs> and um, coming from an office building, the Longworth House office building, where you don't really go to the Capitol if you're a staffer. Right. Mm -hmm. You barely do, unless you're on a tour. Going there was like going to the NFL. You're like, wow, I'm in the Capitol. This is the big show. Wow. So you asked a question. I gave you a five-minute answer. <laughs> That's what we like on this podcast. Uh, so talk to us about your time uh, as the top spokesman for the Senate Majority Leader. You know, what kind of crises did you have to deal with? You know, talk to us about, uh, I guess, your typical day job and then also, um, you know, the not-so-typical days. Well, what was really fascinating was, you know, I was always – um, promoting uh, my boss uh, when I was working in the rank and file, okay? And that meant when I talked to reporters, I would get them on the line with a congressman or I'd give a quote to the con for, on behalf of the congressman. Well, now that I was the top spokesman for the Senate Majority Leader, he, um, he was very busy with the Senate floor and dealing with his colleagues. And so he often would rely on me to get the message out. So I was allowed to be quoted on the record on behalf of him. And that was the, one of the, that was like the first time mm -hmm. I really had a liberal, they sort of just 
took the leash off and said, you know, you're, you're at the best at your game. You can do this now. And so I had my first experience with that or two experiences with that. One was where uh, I gave a quote to CNN and um, all of a sudden I saw it on the screen. <laughs> uh, holy cow. Mm. I just went from like having a little machine gun in the House of Representatives having a tank gun and realizing that the power behind that position and the responsibility of that was um, pretty weighing on me. Now, a little while later, <clears throat> I also learned a valuable lesson. We had a problem with an education bill that failed on the Senate floor. And um, I was chumming with reporters and I'm you know, has have pretty good of the back and forth. And this one reporter I've known for a long time, this guy from USA Today, um, we were chatting and he said, so what are you going to, what are you guys, what's, what's the next move? And I go, you know, I don't know what we're going to do, but uh, let me go back and I'll get back to you really quick. Okay. Next day in USA Today, Ron Bonjean says, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> and so when I got back there to that, got to my desk the next morning, there was a post-it from my chief of staff that said, see me, mm. you know what I mean? And I learned my lesson. I mean, that was, that was okay because that was a very low level thing. If you can think about it. Um, and so my day was pretty much what I love about that job is I, I worked by walking around, meaning that, um, uh, I was not often at my desk unless I was watching the news in the morning and reading the clips. I was often on the move talking to reporters up in the press galleries being at my boss at with my boss at press conferences or meetings and you're moving the ball forward. You're constantly felt like you were a quarterback on the field. And that was the coolest, coolest thing. Um, and so, you know, the days would go by pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you're at, you've asked me about the, so a typical day would be getting up, go, going, going to work, reading the clips and starting to move and talking to reporters and going to your first meetings with staff or with Trent Lott, he would call me either Bojangles or Bon Jovi <laughs> uh, because of the Bojangles restaurants down south in Mississippi or Bon Jovi because my last name is Bon Jean. Yeah, close enough, right? Right, exactly. So after we talked about the messages of the day in the morning, we'd be off to the races pretty much. And usually our plans would be thrown out the door within like an hour or two because just other things, life would get in the way, life in the Senate. Um, but it was, it was a blast. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast, Fly on the Wall, and we'll be right back. This week's political fun fact, uh, comes from you from James Madison and James Monroe. Uh, in the late 18th century, when running for Congress was still a pretty novel thing to do, James Madison and James Monroe faced off for the same Virginia Senate seat in 1789. Good restaurant. Uh, when they did, the two felt <laughs> Expanding, debate Expanding, believe it or not. Uh, when they did, the two felt debate was so important to voters' decision-making process that they split the costs of a shared carriage, traveling from town to town in their district and debating one another in taverns. Madison won, but Monroe was later selected to the Senate by the state legislature. Wait, that is wild. One, like, that's that's great to see that, like, they cared about debate so much. But also, like, a James Madison, James Monroe Senate race? Like, that would have been wild. My question is, what do you think they talked about in this shared carriage? Like, do you think they, like... Where do you get your wig? <laughs> do you have this? Do we... I bet you they have the same wig guy. Uh, they probably have the same wig guy. Were they friends? 
They shared the same carriage. This reminds me of when uh, Beto O'Rourke and Will Hurd yeah. uh, oh, had to do that long their road trip road back trip, to yeah. D.C. during this. Was it a snowstorm or something like that last year, I think? Yeah. Yeah. I forget what they were doing. Yeah. But they, they like shared a car. That was really cute. That was really cute. That's typical day. Talk to us about a not-so-typical day. We know that uh, Senator Lott faced a lot of difficulties leading up to his resignation, and you were the top spokesman at the time. So tell us a little bit what that was like, <clears throat> navigating this crisis, even in a time before Twitter or before you know, news is on you 24-7. What was it like to sort of manage uh, all the crises leading up to yeah. that resignation? Yeah, well, you know, I'll talk about – I can talk about that. We were the – we so would – I don't know if you've tr- followed or were watched or remember the anthrax attacks – the chemical attacks on Capitol Hill where envelopes of white power right. would show up. But that happened a month later. Um, dealing with that aftermath as his top spokesperson was insane. Um, and so it really built up a lot of thick skin um, to go over. So, like, you know, we all kind of know what happened on 9-11, but not many people remember the anthrax attacks if you weren't through it, if you didn't go through it. Mm-hmm. But imagine being with your boss, going to the White House for breakfast in the morning with the president, and telling him what the message of the, what you thought the message of the day should be, and him looking at you saying, you know, um, the Democratic leader, something happened in his office. I'm not telling you what until we talk to the president. But go, you know, we're, let's talk after the breakfast. And so we we did. Um, as when he came out, we were driving back, and he said, look, um, some 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 type of chemical attack happened to the Democratic leader's office. This has not been national news yet. Um, but what I want you to do as soon as you get to the office is go get your medication. And I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so as soon as I arrived in the Capitol, the, the U.S. Navy had set up a medical processing station where each congressional staffer would get three uh, pills of Cipro, which is uh, antibiotic which would kill um, dangerous drugs that were in the air because um, this white powder envelope that hit the Democratic leader's office in, um, oh, I can't remember which building. I think it was the Hart Building. were in the vents. It was in the ventilation. Wow. And several people were and ended up hospitalized over it. And the Capitol was really worried that they were under threat and under attack. So as soon as the public found out about it, this was obviously a national news, national, like it was Crazy, yeah. and so I ended up in a meeting. So, the, so my the White House breakfast started at seven a.m. I ended up in a meeting with uh, the Department of Health and Human Services secretary, uh, generals that were involved in bio warfare, chemical chemical bio warfare, um, huh. the Senate Majority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, you know, various senators, and we were trying to figure out. Okay, we need to a, to do a press conference on Capitol Hill. We need to go out there, and we need to calm the nation and tell them that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. And so we were dealing with these generals who are talking about, okay, and scientists that were using these really complicated terms, <laughs> like a very tiny granule of a chemical, uh, anthrax chemical, they were calling it an explosive plume. And <laughs> things like that good. would scare the hell out of people. Right. <laughs> and so the my boss, the Seren Lock came to me and he goes, I want you to get a hold get I want you to get to get a hold of this thing. Take control of it. 
I want this sealed, signed, sealed, delivered out there. I want everybody to come figure it out. He looked at me like, get these guys under control. Like, get these generals and scientists under control. So think about that. The night before, you go to bed thinking, I am going to do something on policy today. (laughs) Next thing you know, you're doing that. And, um, And so we did. We did a press conference. It was successful. But um, that was a start, like, that was sort of an example of how your skin grows thicker over right. time yeah. through going through a lot of these things. So by the time, um, in December of 2002, Trent Lott had uh, made, so there was a birthday party for Strom Thurmond, who was a 100-year-old senator from South Carolina who was retiring. Mm-hmm. All right? Well, I, don't, I don't know what... Why would you even want to be in the Senate at 100 years old? <laughs> I'm retired. Once, I think once you pass 89.90, man, there's no looking back. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> but I think that's kind of his deal. So many better things to do. They had like five or six birthday parties for this guy. <laughs> and Trent Lott went to a birthday party. Uh, it was broadcast live on C-SPAN. And Bob Dole, got, who was a former Senate Majority mm. Leader, got up before Trent Lott and told all of Trent's... Like, he didn't steal it, but he used all of Trent Lott's material. So Lot then had a chance to speak, and he, like, was just winging it. He he repeated a couple of Bob Dole's jokes, and then he said, if Strom Thurmond hadn't been president, we wouldn't have had all these problems over all these years. Now, Strom Thurmond had ran for president as a Dixiecrat right. um, from the South, and he had, he had converted to being, um, to, to being a Republican and anti-segregation, but back then he wasn't. Yeah. And... Um, some people misconstrued his comments when he had problems for African-Americans, all these problems over all these years. Mm. That's not what Trent Lott meant, but that's how it began to unfold. And now we're talking about how this happened. It started being reported on blogs. Now, there was no social media, so <laughs> blogs are like, the, are like the dinosaur of social media, right? They are, but this one was a Velapisaurus raptor. <laughs> I mean, this thing started, it was bad. And, um, you know, I like to call, so on Fridays at four o'clock, as a press secretary in Congress, I advise all the press secretaries to be prepared for this. And they, they come up to me like, you're right, it happened. It's called the four o'clock, four o'clock screw you call. <laughs> it's when a reporter calls you. And says, "I've got this story. I need a quote from you. I'm going. I'm going to uh, publish in an hour. Well, if it's Friday at four o'clock, you're, most of the time your boss is gone. Yeah. People are checked out. Um, there's a great tactic a lot of staffers use where they put their jacket on the back of the chair and they leave their TV on, and so you kind of think they're there, <laughs> but they're gone. <laughs> and so, like, there's very little staff around to to help." And they were basically called to say, yeah, we heard, you know, this story is, we heard Trent Lott said this. What does this mean? We're going to publish in an hour. And it was very difficult to track down. The Post, the Washington Post ran with something. And that, by the way, that blog that I mentioned was ABC News. The uh, the note um, started it all. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, the Washington Post wrote a story. Um, that story was carried on Meet the Press then on Sunday, was talked about. And by Monday, um, the volume had grown to a level of big concern. My boss had not, Trent Lott had not recognized the problem yet. Um, He was dismissive of it. Al Gore was being interviewed on CNN by Judy Woodruff about global warming or something completely different. (laughs) And at the end, 
This is this is really interesting how politicians work. At the end, she goes, "Do you have anything else you'd like to add?" And he goes, "Yeah." He goes, "I don't think Trent Lott is a racist, but I think what he said was racist." Now the crew, Judy Whitfield crew, had no idea what he was talking about, but they went to find out, and they realized that he was just trying to get on camera, and that's when it exploded on TV. So imagine in this atmosphere, two weeks of just crazy town. 24-7, wall-to-wall coverage on this. And as a staffer, for, for the one of the first things you do is try to connect with your boss on your and your team on this and try to get in the right mindset about how to handle it. But one of the first things that um, a politician does in a crisis moment like this, when they're being defined in a negative way, they react by saying, that's not who I am. Don't they know me? They have no idea who you are. But it's a self-defense mechanism. Like, I would never do that. That's not who I am. And so, you know, and he's like, I'm the Senate Majority Leader. Like, this is ridiculous. I'm, you know, and so he picked up and he left town to go on his vacation that he had planned. Um, And he wouldn't tell us. Only one person knew where he was at. (laughs) Right? And so this started to grow and grow. And I kept saying, this is a problem. We need to manage it. And so by the time it was <clears throat> senators were starting, so the key is you have to know where your senators are at because you're not going to be majority leader for long if you don't know where your members are at. Uh, members started expressing big concern because their phones were ringing in their offices back in their states from voters. And that's where Trent Lott began to understand this is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying, we need to have a press conference to let the air out of the tires mm-hmm. to say... Sorry about that. Didn't mean it. We're going to move forward with our agenda and we're going to move on with our lives. But that's not what happened. It just took him so long. So by the by so by it got the problem got so big that President Bush said to his staff on Air Force One going to Philadelphia for an event, we have to lance this boil because the boil got so big. He got up in front of everyone and said, Trent Lott uh, apologized and rightly so. Uh, This language has no place in America. And my chief, the chief, she's the chief of staff for McConnell now, uh, Sharon Soderstrom. Um, and she was the deputy chief for Trent Lott, and she and I were kind of managing the crisis. She looked at me, and I looked at her, and I just said, they're going to have to kill us now. It's mm-hmm. over. And for the next week and a half, members started walking away from Trent Lott to the point where he had to resign. Even when he held a press conference and said, you know, the buck stops here, it's my fault. When the president gives you a thumbs down, that's it. So the physical aspects of a person in a crisis like that, it is incredibly insane. You are up until 1 or 2 in the morning reading clips, um, looking at the Drudge Report, looking at all these things that are to make sure that you're on top of things, and and then you're up at 6 in the morning. And so you're not thinking about eating. You're not really caring about sleeping. You're on this super hyper adrenaline. Uh, imagine like you're crashing for a final exam that you never took classes for, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the we kind of relate. reaction. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And so the other key thing, the human thing in a crisis is that when um, something of this volume, the staff really looks at you and they want to know, are we going to be okay? So you know the term spin doctor? Mm-hmm. Have you heard that before? Well, imagine if you walked into an emergency room, like a, like let me imagine you like 
cut your arm or you were in an accident and you went to the emergency room, would you want your doctor to look at you and go, oh my God, you're bleeding. That's <laughs> terrible. We have to do something about that right away. No. You want them to look at you, calm, cool, collected, like they have a thousand yards there and go, give me the stitches, give me the scissors, give me the... And do it. And that's, I realize that the staff, everyone's looking at you. And you need to be professional, calm, cool, and collected because or else if you panic, they panic. And you lose a lot of credibility because then they don't think you know how to handle it. So when it's time to make recommendations on what to do, they won't. They won't care. They'll say, "Oh yeah, we don't trust you. You, you, you know, you're uh, you're knee jerking. You know, you're ridiculous." So that was one of the things I learned in the Senate Majority Leader's office right away: as maintain your cool, even when things are just going to shit. And so. Um, and so that's carried, I've carried with that with me for the rest of my life. You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. Our Politico's Ezreal People this week comes to us from none other than uh, the president himself. Um, so you may have seen this. Uh, I think it happened like Tuesday or Wednesday during a press conference after the uh, President Trump returned from his trip abroad in Asia. Uh, but he had a little interruption in the middle of his speech because uh, he had to clear his throat. He had to grab a drink of water, um, grabbed his Fiji bottle, um, made a whole big thing about it, had to, like lean off camera, stuff like that, um, which is funny because... Marco Rubio did the exact same thing a couple of years ago in his uh, one of his uh, addresses to the country, actually, I believe it was a post uh, a response to the State of the Union, um, and Trump savaged him for it. So Marco Rubio took the time to write a cute little response on Twitter um, to the president this past week uh, and said, similar, but needs work on his form, has to be done in one single motion, and I should never leave the camera, but not bad for his first time. Um, good to see Marco taking this with a bit of humor. Looking at your career, this would not be your last crisis communication situation you would have to deal with. Uh, so you ended up leaving, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you ended up leaving the Senate, going to Commerce, and then coming back to the House for Speaker of the House, Dennis yep. Pastor. Um, and you would think it would be smooth sailing, but unfortunately it was not. Never is, is it? <laughs> yeah. No, not no, as a communications person. <laughs> you're right. I, I had done, you know, I've worked in the House for a number of years, worked in the Senate, and I worked in the administration. And I was going to go to go probably work for a public relations firm or do something different. And the speaker's office asked me to join them. And I thought, well, this will be cake, man. I did this before. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was a job from hell. It was like one of the worst experiences I ever had. At the same time, it was an honor to serve the institution. It was an honor to be there and to work at that level. Mm -hmm. But it was really tough. And, um, you know, we... <clears throat> I, there was about a crisis. There was a crisis a week for two years. Um, smaller ones, huge ones. We started with um, this woman named. We started with a crisis. Another thing that lasted like two weeks in the American, two or three weeks in the American lexicon. 
uh, a woman named Terry Shivo was a person who was on life support in Florida, and um, there was a there was an uh, there was a breakdown in whether or not um, the family could pull the plug, and it, it rose to the federal government's level and it rose to Congress's level on whether or not this woman should be kept alive. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of amazing that that it got to that level, but for two weeks I was dealing with something that has never ever happened again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the first time it ever happened actually. Um, and then we, we had to deal with, um, a lot of ethics scandals, um, from house Republicans, um, due to the fallout from the Jack Abramoff lobbying, um, mm-hmm. investigation that the FBI has began to open and the things that were revealing itself <clears throat> through that process to the point where our house majority leader had to step down. We had, we appointed a, an interim majority leader. And I mean, there's a ton of stuff that happened. I mean, I remember being in Iraq. Like, I, I, so like when you have that kind of job, you sign up thinking that you're going to work every day to in the Capitol and you're doing your thing and you're, you know, trying to help your house or have Senate, house or Senate majorities and, you know, for the party. And um, I remember my parents were coming in on a Friday um, and it was Wednesday and I was pulled into Margaret Peterlin's office. She's now chief of staff of the state department. And she pulled me in and said, um, tomorrow we are going to be going to Baghdad, Iraq. Um, you're coming with us <laughs> and we need a speech written, um, because he's going to do a press conference there. And we've all had to keep this under wraps for national security reasons. So I called my parents and I said, sorry, <laughs> we need to reschedule that. Oh, um, and had dinner with my girlfriend at that time, packed, and I was off to Baghdad. Wow. And um, I remember <clears throat> um, we traveled in helicopter. We traveled with two helicopters. One was the speaker's, one was mine. And one was a staff helicopter. Not my helicopter. <laughs> it was a military helicopter. You personally got a helicopter. Well, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? But um, yeah, that's not going to happen for a while. Unless there's an Uber <laughs> helicopter, that's an Uber X helicopter. <laughs> but um, but anyway, uh, our staff helicopter was taking off. We were about thirty feet off the ground, and there was a problem, mechanical problem. And you could see the pilots like flicking switches and everything. And the pilot turned around to me and, and to us. It was me. Margaret Peterlin, the uh, the uh, chief, uh, top medical, uh, uh, the a- Admiral Icehold, who's the Navy doctor, the top Navy doctor on the Hill, and a couple other people. And he just screamed, don't move. And I saw, and we had another Army guy sitting with like his visor on, but I could see his face, uh, his mouth, just mouth like, oh, shit. But that was not what he said. And, um, and we ended up crashing onto the ground. And then slumping over where the rotors are going a million miles an hour, and they almost flipped us over. Stopped just in time before the rotors hit the ground, and there was gas everywhere. Oh. You could smell it, and they were like, get out, get out, get out, run, run, run. So we just ran in 120-degree heat to the van. And so I saw the speaker's helicopter coming back to um, coming back to land, and I'm like, that is so nice. The speaker knows that we have a problem, and it's coming back. That's not true. Uh, this the, apparently the rules in Baghdad are helicopters have to travel in pairs, and I didn't know that. I thought that he was just being nice and coming back for us. But anyway, um, there are a lot of different crises, and we ended up with um, 
the worst crisis of them all, which helped cost us our majority, which is the Mark Foley congressional page scandal. A congressman from Florida had uh, been been outed for sending illicit text me- messages to 16-year-old pages. How awful is that? And um, so the, the <laughs> what's interesting is life in the capital is much like life in a village. When people are... <laughs> off of their schedules or people are in different places or different things are happening, kind of know something's off. So I remember it was the last day of our session uh, or the second to last day of session and my, my now wife, girlfriend, came and brought submarine sandwiches for everybody in the office. It was really nice of her. Mm-hmm. From Mangialardo's. Um, and uh, I walked over to the Senate subway. I was walking back and I saw Ted Barrett of CNN, who's a really tall guy. Mm-hmm. And whenever you see Ted Barrett in a place, standing in a place that he's not usually standing at, usually or supposed to be standing at, you know something's wrong. <laughs> I call it the Ted Barrett effect. So like you <laughs> see him around the Capitol in some place, you know that there is just bad news. A problem there. Yes. <laughs> Avoid that. Exactly. I saw him lurking around her office. I'm like, what's going on? And so I went up to my office and the chief of staff for Mark Foley had left me a message. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I really know what this is about. So I called her and I said, hey, um, I got your message. And she was crying. And she said, we have to resign. Well, Mark Foley's going to resign today. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, okay. She goes, so how do we do this? And I said, I'll call you back. And I went down to my chief of staff's office. He was reading the paper. Like, you know, he had his glasses on his nose reading the paper. And I said to him, um, uh, Mark Foley's resigning. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and everything went off the rails then for a couple of weeks. Notice in, my, notice in my comments about these crises, a crisis on Capitol Hill can last and usually last a couple of weeks. Now, with the Donald Trump Twitter effect, those are largely masked. Mm-hmm. But before him, two, two weeks is usually you know, the volume, standard, standard thing before, before people get sick of it. Yeah. And so we, so in, the, uh, I, I, I'll leave it to your questions because I think I'm talking too much. <laughs> well, I love it. And you, you've kind of provided a, uh, a wonderful segue to the next room that we sort of want to get into, which, uh, was your role in helping, uh, nominate successfully or, uh, confirm successfully Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Uh, so you were running point on communications with the Trump transition team, uh, and specifically for, uh, that nomination and confirmation. So First of all, tell, tell, tell us a little bit how you were chosen for this job, how you sort of fell into that uh, challenge. Yeah, so um, I had been a volunteer for the Trump transition team. Actually, Sean Spice was a friend of mine, and, uh, you know, actually this is in December, so before, like, I was headed to Vegas for Brianna Kilar, who is an anchor for CNN. She was getting yeah. married. And um, we love her. She's a friend of the podcast. Oh yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. She's <laughs> she is a fabulous person and a friend of the podcast <laughs> and, and geopolitics as a whole. But and an incredible karaoke singer, by the way. Really? <laughs> yes. We'll have to ask her about she, that. She <laughs> she's has an incredible voice. So uh, in any way, in any uh, event, um, I was talking to Sean and I said, "Hey, I saw that a couple of our friends are going over to help with the transition." And he paused and he's like, "Oh my God, you got to totally do this." I'm like, "Oh, whoa, what do you mean?" <laughs> And so um, originally I was going to be handling the nominees for labor and interior, which sounds really boring. And then... Ended um, up not being so boring. Well, then he came back and he said, I want you... Actually, change the plans. I need you to be 
kind of the pit boss for all the communication Sherpas for all the teams. So you'll be supervising all them. When there's a problem, they're going to come to you and you can be helpful in resolving those bigger problems. So that's kind of what I was used to anyway, kind of in my previous positions um, and what I do with a lot of clients. And so that which I was perfect for me. We ended up having a lot of problems with a lot of nominees. And obviously the labor one was one of the biggest ones. Right. Um, after after uh, Trump was um, sworn into office, the transition team went away largely, um, kind of like magic, like, <laughs> kind of like poof, gone. <laughs> and I just went back to my job and a week later, it was a Sunday night and I got a call. Uh, I'm sorry, it was during the week and I got a call from Sean again. And he said, actually, um, I just met with Ryan's previous, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller in the Oval Office. And we were talking about the Gorsuch nomination and who could be who could lead the point on that on communications that has Senate experience and as a PR guy that could help handle this. And your name came up automatically by three of us. And so Ryan's just said, there's no more discussion, call him. As the, the master of managing crisis communications, uh, of course it wouldn't be a, a complete nomination process without a, one scandal, as minor as it ended up being. Um, but tell us a little bit about the Gorsuch plagiarism scandal. Yeah, that one was really something... We were expecting opposition research to be dropped on us mm-hmm. um, before the hearing, before the three days of Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, which did happen, and then um, sometime before the vote. And so we got a call from Politico saying that there was that that a group had um, ran his master thesis at Oxford through um, plagiarism software and found that. Uh, found that some of the citations that he he had lacked some of the citations um, regarding some of the so so he had he had taken he had borrowed from other author authors without citing mm-hmm. with doing the proper citations of a master's thesis. Well, the challenge is the type of master's thesis that he was writing at Oxford was a very different process than than some of the other ways that master theses are written. So. My goal as a communications director, as a communications guy, and dealing with a call like that is to put it, try to put it on pause and have everyone understand the gravity of the situation that we're now in. Mm-hmm. We have a report, we have a newspaper that is calling us regarding a charge regarding plagiarism. Plagiarism is a career-ending uh, thing that has happened to many people throughout history, um, senators, you know, professors, like a lot of people have gone down because of this. We are talking about the nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States. So we need to treat it as such. Like mm-hmm. we need to treat this very seriously. This is not a who's first to file the story right. type of thing. This is not, you know, um, the race, the race to post something on Twitter. This is let's take it seriously, folks. And that's what I that's the way our message was with uh, with the reporters dealing with the issue. And so our goal then was to slow everything down through that through that thematic. Let's slow the process down and let's figure out what's really going on. And so by doing that, we're also able to organize ourselves mm-hmm. in that process. So <clears throat> we were able to get his former professors who dealt with the thesis, um, researchers on the project, um, people that were familiar with that process, 
on the phone with us to walk us through what's going on, to provide letters of support, mm-hmm. to have them available to talk to the reporter. Okay. So what I said what I said said was we want after we got organized. So the first thing you do when it, when you get a call from a reporter like this is you say I'll call you back. <laughs> and when you call them back, you give the gravity of the situation and say we let's we're going to take this one step at a time, everyone. And that's where we got organized. So when we came on the call the next time, the reporter brought his forces to bear. He had other reporters and an editor on the phone, mm-hmm. right? So you have a large group of people now talking to each other. We also had the White House Counsel's Office mm-hmm. with us as well. They were incredible. We had a, a number of former clerks to the judge, to Gorsuch, who had moved to town for the for the nomination process, literally put their lives on hold and got rentals, monthly rentals, and just lived here to be helpful. Wow. They came in. And so I had this incredible team. So the next call we made, we felt heavily armed mm-hmm. and had a great had great answers for the defense. <coughs> Politico then took that, digested it, said they'd call us back, and they called us back and said, I think we're they said, we think we're still going with the story. I said, Great. We want to talk to your editor in chief now. Mm-hmm. Slow down the process. <laughs> okay? And there's a reason for that, not just to delay the story. Which is part of it, of course, mm-hmm. but slowing it down starts peeling the story back like layers of an onion. Okay, you begin to modify what they think are the real facts to the facts that you bring to bear. Mm-hmm. There is such a thing as alternative facts if they're true. Mm-hmm. So you have one perception, and then we brought all these other perceptions, these all these other facts to bear. Right. Right. So by the time we talk to the editor in chief. One of the key messages we gave is headlines really matter. In news stories, a headline can be defining because a lot of people just read the headline in the first couple of paragraphs of the story. Actually, if you watch CNN or Fox, the Chiron, the, um, the headlines onto the screen are even more important these days, especially if the screen's on mute. Right? Mm-hmm. So that was the key message we gave to the editor-in-chief was, Please don't tell us that you don't write the headlines, which happens when, when reporters write stories um, on regular political issues, and the, and the headline doesn't match the story, and they go, oh, I don't write the headline, so the editor writes the headline. So our, our message was, this matters. Um, by the time they went, and oh, by the way, what we also had cooking on the side was a pre that we had began to organize to launch on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So by the time the story was about to be launched, we gave the thumbs up, and a very prestigious academic on the outside, um, GOP, a Republican conservative judiciary academic, released, uh, put on Twitter to everyone, hey, folks, um, there's a conspiracy to take down the Supreme Court nominee. (laughs) Watch out for that story coming soon and have your eyes wide open. Right. So by the time the story, so we did the, we launched the pre-buttle at eight or nine story comes out at 10. It was beautiful. So the reaction from our side was a rally effect Mm -hmm. around the judge. Um, The story itself was milquetoast. The headline was, um, you know, Gorsuch borrows from other authors. The word plagiarism did not exist in that headline. And then in the story, they had their <clears throat> couple of sources, uh, 
that made their case, and then they allowed us a large section to make our case. And it was a wash. Mm-hmm. So that was something we were very proud of. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because Maggie Haberman on Twitter saw all this skull go down. She's like, this is a professional. She wrote, this is a professional operation. She wrote, one, pre two, story, three, Republicans rally. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the way, that's, that's how you frame up a, 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 in, the, in the communications game. That's how you do it. Well, I hope anyone who's interested in communications is taking notes during this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I was. I remember the whole thing unfolding and just seeing. I, I didn't see any. I didn't see any major news stories about it confirming it. I just saw some Twitter conspiracy, and as a, yeah, I, I just remember thinking like, wow, like this is really the uh, wind taken immediately out of the sails. So job the, well done. The, thanks. I mean, the coolest thing is when you're at happy hour the next day and you're talking to people and you bring it up. They don't know what if they didn't know idea what I was talking about. I'm like, great. <laughs> Sounds good. Perfect. Yeah, Job exactly. Well done. Yeah. Well, so we're about out of time with you, uh, but we do have a couple of really quick lightning round questions. Uh, so just really very quick answers. Let's do the lightning round wheel. <laughs> uh, so first question for you is you have a famous DC Christmas party uh, that you in fact bring celebrities to. Uh, so who is your favorite celebrity you have brought to your party? Um, okay. So fa- this is a great question. Um, favorite is Flavor Flav. <laughs> awesome guy. He came in. He stayed for four hours. He was the man. He interacted with everyone, took photos. By the end of the night, I said, I was running out of things to say to him. So I said, Flavor Flav, you're the man. And he looked at me and he goes, how can I be the man when you're the man? <laughs> and I'm like, this guy's the greatest. And so we went, like, we went back and forth, you know, for like five minutes and I thought if I could just have this guy walk into meetings with me, it'd be the best thing ever. Just a personal hype guy. <laughs> yeah, personal hype guy. He was the best. The worst guy we ever had. I don't know if you know who this guy is. It's Gary Busey. Yeah. And he was the worst guy we ever had. Um, also, he endorsed Newt Gingrich for president, which made uh, The Tonight Show. Um, and uh, several talk shows were talking about whether it was whether or not um, having Newt Gingrich uh, I'm sorry, having uh, Gary Busey and North Gingrich was worse than having him come to your Christmas party. <laughs> so, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, so I know this is a, a long question that probably deserves a longer answer, but as quickly as you can summarize it, why did you go to the private sector and what's the best part of being there now? I was getting married. I well, I was getting married and um, I was wanted to do something more with my life. I was I wanted to build a business. I had worked on Capitol Hill for... Uh, in, in the public sector about 16 years and I was starting to atrophy on what I could learn. <laughs> I just wasn't learning anything, anything anymore. If yeah. you kind of get a sense for all those things that <clears throat> I went through. And so I was getting married and I thought, well, let's, I want to build a business. I'm building a family. Let's do this. And, um, the really interesting thing is when you, when you leave the federal government after 16 years and you start out in the private sector, owning your own business as a sole business owner, completely disorienting mm. because you know like when you're working on capitol hill you know where the you know you, you have a schedule you know where the meetings are you know when your mm. lunch is going to be you know who you're having lunch with mm. and next thing you know my business is open and who i'm having lunch with myself <laughs> so i had to, i had to organize my own schedule when's I had my to start, morning meeting whenever i wake up <laughs> right i had to start knocking on doors having coffee and lunches and dinners with potential clients and mm. get involved and that's what i wanted was a new challenge 
Uh, so last question, uh, you are a geopolitics fellow here on this campus this semester, working with a lot of different students. So, you know, uh, in a sentence, what's the best thing you've learned so far uh, from a student here on campus? I've learned how um, informed and motivated uh, the students are here at, at the McCord Institute. I'm sorry, the Georgetown Institute of Politics. I mean, they just are. It's just incredible to see how smart many of them are. Um, to the point where, like, I'm just wondering if they have time to study. <laughs> you know I mean? We don't. We just, don't. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just like, they just, so um, I've just been extremely impressed with the knowledge they brought, bring to bear and their insightfulness and their sense of strategic, I don't know, just sort of their strategic mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was very impressive. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Ron. We knew when we saw you as a fellow that you were going to be one of the best episodes, and I think we can confidently state that this is like a top episode on our podcast. You've offered incredible stories, and uh, we thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's, I'm very proud to be part of this process. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Fly in the Wall. We'll be right back. So what did I tell you? Those Christmas party stories were absolutely fantastic. Like, no regret whatsoever. I think those are hilarious. Okay, but also... <laughs> like Flava Flav, dude. <laughs> okay, but also it was a very interesting conversation about, um, you know, all of the incredible rooms he was in, you know, the very powerful rooms he was in when he was, you know, the top spokesman for both the Senate Majority Leader and, uh, you know, the House Speaker. Um, also... Interestingly, how he talked, um, you know, how he maneuvered uh, you the Gorsuch confirmation, I thought was really, really cool. Yeah. Um, and his sense of humor really is, is what gets me because like anyone who goes through this sort of stuff that Ron went through, um, I could see just getting so jaded with politics, with Washington. Uh, but he sticks around because it's, it's what he enjoys and he recognizes the good uh, that's somewhere very, very, very deep within it all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's really fair. Like, in our conversations with Ron, and you, it's just clear that he's having so much fun doing this. Yeah. Like, as much as it's, like, like, what he said at one point, it was, like, a job from hell. Mm -hmm. You can tell he just, like, he just relishes in, like, you know, scandal and chaos, essentially, and has so much fun with it and jokes around with it, and it's really, really interesting. Yeah, and it was clear he enjoyed his time here with us and his time with the Institute, so we thank him for everything he's given to the next generation of crisis managers and, and scandal chasers. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> uh, so with that, we'd like to thank you again for listening to Fly on the Wall podcast. Make sure you give us a shout. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Snapchat, um, email, whatever. We're reachable. Um, you can have our cell phone numbers too if you ask. <laughs> Uh, nope. <laughs> probably not. Uh, but we hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving break. Uh, happy holidays to you all. Enjoy some wonderful pie, or if you're really adventurous, cookies, which I firmly believe are better than pie. We'll get into uh, that next week. That'll be our grind argument yeah. next time. Uh, and happy Thanksgiving from us and our family here at Final Wall and the Institute Politics. You are crazy. Okay, cookies are significantly <laughs> are good. We don't have to wait until next week. Objectively. This is, this You're is, wrong. This is the most absurd thing I've ever heard come from anyone's mouth. The fact that pie 
is somehow on a lower tier of dessert than cookies. Okay, I have two mm-hmm. points to make about this. Number one, not only is pie a long episode. absolutely delicious and is just tastier than I don't cookies. disagree that okay. pie is, okay. is not delicious. Hold on, this I have two point points to make. <laughs> yes, my second point is that pie is a rarity in the world. You are only mm-hmm. really like technically, I guess, and I'm putting in air quotes because I break this, but allowed to eat pie <laughs> oh, yes. a couple of times So you here. break it. Where, but however, d- d- you can eat... Co- oh, hold on, I'm talking. Not necessarily. However, you can eat cookies any time of the day. Disagree. There's just there's such a diversity to cookies. Like, uh, that's such a is sweeping statement. Is that not a beauty? Statement. It's a just sweeping statement, though. Is that not a, is that not a beauty? But that's that like, you're saying, like, I like the sky more than I like the land. Like, it's stupid. <laughs> sure. I, but uh, I don't think quantity has anything to do with it there. I would argue that if you go into your Thanksgiving meal and you say, I'm going to have an oatmeal chocolate chip oh, plus you also a regular chocolate on, chip Aaron. plus a, a, a macadamia nut oh. plus a First of all, you're picking the wrong kinds of cookies. Chip, if you get to have a plethora plus an Oreo cookie from Wisey's, like... You have a plethora of cookies at your disposal versus one piece of like why do you have one piece of pie? Why? Apple pie? Okay, one, why like, one piece of pie? Why why just apple? I, I routinely this. eat. This is a tradition in also, my family. Pumpkins are stupid. Why would you have a pumpkin pie? <laughs> That's not a point. First off, second, <laughs> uh, I would like to point out that every Thanksgiving, this is a Mesa family tradition. We get three pies, and I have a slice of all three. Right? I feel terrible about myself afterwards. But I have a slice of all three, and it's delicious. Yep. So the what, fact that pi- you what three pies? Oh, okay. So it changes every year, uh, but. Uh, sometimes it's four pieces of pie. I'm not gonna lie, uh, but it's always scandalous pumpkin and chocolate and apple. And then sometimes Ooh, my and chocolate. my uh, my Thea gets a little crazy and she brings like a raspberry, oh. um, which is always really fun. 